Welcome to Nightlight. Psalm 86 verse 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unless we pursue truth, it's only natural that we will simply believe what everyone else believes and live according to the seeming norms we see in other people around us. One of the most misguided examples of this is the way we tend to think of ourselves in parts. The scriptures define our parts to some degree. They speak of our spirit, our soul, our body, our heart, our mind, or will. But unless we take the time and exert the energy to fully understand these terms, even students of scripture easily get pulled into a wrong understanding of these, quote, parts. The result of this wrong understanding is not to think of these as different functions of the same person, but to take on a pagan idea of ourselves as being almost two different beings in one body. This way of thinking is called dualism. The Hebrew revelation of human beings does not support dualism. In other words, we are not a physical container with a spiritual substance floating around inside. We are just one person, according to Scripture. Our body and our spirit are not two separate things. They are not divided into two separate realities. Greek thinking can make that division even worse. It's not wrong to refer to our spirit or our soul or our body distinctly because Scripture makes that distinction. But Scripture does not make that distinction as a division. In other words, Scripture is labeling aspects of the one person. But we tend to not see them as aspects of the one person, but as three distinct parts. Now, clinical psychology does a necessary service by examining human behavior in order to be able to communicate about those behaviors, and it provides labels. And there are gazillion labels, more every day, I think. And please don't think I'm criticizing the work of psychology as it tries to decipher all of our parts. But if we're not careful, we end up being more disintegrated than healed. If all we do is label our parts with no power to unify us back into our full true self. We need those who deal with deeply broken people, psychotherapists and pastor, pastoral counselors and psychiatrists, etc. We need those people who understand the parts. But that's the point. They are parts only because we are broken. We are divided inside. That's why King David prayed the prayer that we quoted in our opening. Teach me to walk in your ways. Unite my heart to fear your name. Walking in Hebrew is always a reference to how we live every aspect of our lives. It doesn't just mean putting one foot in front of the other. To walk is to be united in one purpose, 
focus, devotion, and action. To walk with God is to be in union with Him in spirit, soul, and body. The Shema, which most of us are familiar with, says you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Then Jesus expands that when He adds that the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. We all know, if we have lived more than a few minutes on this planet, that our growth in love is both vertical and horizontal. How we develop in our love for God is measured mostly by how we love each other. And loving each other and God is a matter of growth. And growth is a matter of change. And change is a matter of wise choices. But these choices must be rooted in something more than your willpower. I probably need to expand on this a bit more than I'm tending to want to do right now. But willpower, the power to just choose to be different, which a lot of pop psychology self-help gurus and teachers and books tell you to do, that doesn't work. How many of you know exerting your will in every detail of life in which you feel weak or defeated has only quite often resulted in more weakness and defeat. Your choices must be rooted in your relationship with God first. We begin as little children. We trust God as our Father. Not only do we have our origin in Him, we continue to live and move and have our being in Him And out of that truth, we can begin to learn and grow and change. But it it begins there. It begins in that primary relationship. And that relationship has got to be understood as not some legal transaction where you, quote, get born again and then you're going to heaven and all the rest of your life is kind of left to your willpower. We have to want to learn. We have to want to change. And I have lived long enough and dealt with myself long enough and other people long enough to know that we do not seek change unless we are highly motivated. And most motivation is energized by the pain of living with ourselves and others. Without that pain, we tend to sink into ourselves and never change. We may think we want to change. We may even be attracted to the idea of changes. But we only seek to actually change when we truly believe change is possible and when we truly see that it is vitally necessary. Otherwise, we simply remain in our mess. We we sadly all know of examples of elderly people who have remained in their mess all their lives. And we likely see aspects of our own lives where we have remained stuck also. Now God uses circumstances to awaken us and teach us and even sometimes to force us to a certain degree to face our need. When Mary and I first moved here to North Carolina from Texas, I was pretty sad. I knew we were in God's will, 
but I loved Texas. I was pretty homesick. Weeks went by, and it only seemed to be worse. I went to the scriptures to try to find some comfort and seemed to be directed to a verse I had never really paid much attention to before, found in Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11. Not a verse you would hang on your wall or find in a scripture promise box, but it said, Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has settled on his lees and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither has he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remains in him, and his flavor is not changed. This verse stayed strongly on my mind, even though when I read it, I felt almost totally frustrated by its vagueness. I had no idea what it meant or how it applied to me, or why it seemed to be so strongly put before me, but it did. A few hours later, I heard a knock at the door, and a friend who worked at the Christian bookstore stood with a videotape in her hand and told me that for some reason she felt I needed to watch that videotape. I thanked her and went straight in to view it. It was an old Catherine Kuhlman TV show from the early 1960s. And her text for her message was Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11. Now, you may be jealous that God would be so specific in his answer to me, but I truly want you to know God has to deal with some people so directly, not because they are necessarily his favorite, but because they are so messed up that they just need more help than the average person. I'm not being funny. I was really messed up. And the message went like this. She said, Here Moab is described as a people who had refused the dealings of God and had become thoroughly set in their old ways. When it says they had settled on their lees, this was a reference to winemaking. The lees are the sedentary, crusty parts of grapes that sink to the bottom of a wine container. They are undisturbed, and then the flavor of the wine, for good or ill, is affected by that undisturbed uh, lees. God was about to disturb Moab in order to keep Moab from being comfortable where they had always been. Well, it didn't take long for me to see the message. God was not going to allow me to settle into being comfortable where I was. He was going to guide me to a place in life where I would be given the opportunity to keep choosing, keep changing, he was not primarily interested in my comfort or my emotional security, which kind of shows you that being in the will of God doesn't always mean being happy. Not everybody has to move. Not everybody has to be disturbed like I was. Some have to be far more disturbed than I was. But the point I hope you see is that God orchestrates certain scenarios in our lives for the very purpose of awakening us to want to change and to grow. 
Most of us just do not like change unless what we have uh, what we have been, been having to deal with has become so difficult that we then begin to long to change. And God is all about helping us become more alive to Him and to others, not less. Now, this event I just described was a bit, um, I don't know, over 20 years ago. I'm very thankful for it and have obviously adjusted. But this way of God dealing with me began many years before 20 years ago. One event in particular stands out to me. I was, it was uh, 48 years ago when I was a freshman in college. I was 18 years old. And though I was so young, I was very gifted as a speaker and teacher and worship leader. So I was already in the limelight of our church world, both on campus and in the church. I was also battling deep, unhealed wounds and secretly making many wrong choices in order to comfort myself. I was not developing in godly character. One night at a Sunday night service, a prophet from Scotland had come to speak. At the close of the service, he had some words he spoke over several people. And I had seen prophecy like this before and had been the recipient of several encouraging words, all which at the time seemed to bolster my public image, though they've all come to pass. Uh, at the time, they uh, they were true words, but they were not really the depth of what I needed. I only remember those words because they have been recorded for me and I always had to go reread them because they never seemed to stick with me. But then something happened on this particular night through this Scottish prophet. I remember every word he spoke. I have always remembered it. I never needed to write it down or go away to read it now and then. It was branded on my heart by the Holy Spirit. He said, Son, you are gifted. You are sought after for your gifts. But gifts are not character. Give me your inconsistencies and let me teach you how to live. And there will be a great day ahead for you. I was so self-absorbed at the time, I didn't notice that some more mature believers present saw the need for this exact word, for they saw some of my inconsistencies. But there was a sober atmosphere as this word came to me. And I was not resistant to it, but I was divided inside between my public persona of teacher, worship leader, and big man on campus and my inner turmoil and secret sin on the inside. God was very kind and gentle with me in that message. For if you look up the word inconsistencies, you will see a number of uncomfortable but accurate synonyms. Untrustworthy, unstable, duplicitous, intrinsic opposition in fact or principle, discrepancy, it would have to be very accurate if the word had been, it would have been very accurate if the word had been 
son, you are outwardly very stable and accurate, uh, but inside where no one sees but God, you are the very opposite of what you appear to be publicly. If he had said that, it would have been accurate, but it would have been quite painful and quite exposing, and God is not interested in doing that unless it's absolutely necessary, and sometimes it is, like with Ananias and Sapphira. That accuracy would have been correct, but not helpful for me at the time. It would have left me exposed to collapse that would have become more damaging than the damage already done inside me. Now, don't get me wrong. I just said there may be times when such devastating truth speaking is the stick of dynamite that's needed to break the wall of self-deception. Like when Nathan says to King David, you are the man. But I was a boy, desperately trying to be a good man and failing. God knew what it would take to bring me to my true self, and he was going to do it sovereignly while protecting my freedom of choice. See, only the wisdom and love and patience of God could devise such a marvelous way of dealing with us. In our ignorance, we argue over questions like God's sovereignty versus our free will so forth. But those two subjects are not in opposition, so there is no argument. God's sovereignty has ordained our free will. And yet our free will is subject to many forces that are beyond us. So God sits, as it says in Malachi, he sits as a refiner of silver, and he watches closely over the process as the combination of our will and the fire of life produces the cleansing and the refining. And this process goes on until his image can be seen reflected back to him in us. Okay, let's stop here for a moment. Some of our pain is caused by ourselves, a lot of it. But some are caused by others. Some by devilish attack. Not as much as we would like to blame the devil, but some by the fallen dynamics of this world and by the devils that operate in it. But overall, sits the refiner who is working all things for our ultimate good. It doesn't say all things are good. It says he's working it for our good. And what is that good? To be transformed from glory to glory into the image of his son. Some some circumstances are beyond us. Those we leave in God's good and wise hands. Some we are called to pray into and do battle against. This is so for our training in spiritual warfare and to develop our faith. But many aspects of our struggle are in our hands to a large degree. Yes, by grace. Grace is always involved in this. Remember what I told you in our last session. Grace is not unmerited favor. Grace is power. God's power imparted into your life for your development and your good. These are the aspects of our lives that are raw material that we are invited to operate with grace through 
in order to change us more into the kinds of persons that reflect the character and person of Jesus. And these aspects are what are called by the old teachers of the Christ life, the disciplines. Now don't scream and run from the, the, the room or jump out of the car or wherever you're listening. The devil loves to grab hold of words and twist them in order to either twist them out of uh, recognition of what they really mean or to destroy the good that they are meant to communicate. Discipline is one of those words he loves to twist. We tend to immediately think of that word as harsh, unbending, militaristic, even abusive. In some circles, it can bring to mind an image of being soundly beaten with a stick, depending on how you were treated as a child. But the real meaning of the word, the meaning the Holy Spirit wants us to keep in mind, is that discipline is a means of freeing us up so that we can do naturally and automatically what we want to do in order to be like Jesus. A discipline is a temporary training which produces a lifelong freedom of successful action. Now, this is not rocket science, for heaven's sakes. We all know it. A great pianist whose fingers fly freely over the keys spent many restrictive hours training his fingers before they could fly. We could refer to a great tennis player, a great golfer, a great performer of any kind. They all have one thing in common for certain. They got where they are because they disciplined themselves to limitations which produced their freedom to succeed. Have you noticed that the word discipline and the word disciple and the word discipleship are all of the same root? (laughs) Well, probably you have noticed that. But remember what I said about how the devil loves to twist word meanings? Not only has the enemy twisted the word discipline, to something we think of as being against freedom, he has twisted the word disciple and the meaning of discipleship into words we either totally reject or words we think we are actually doing just by, quote, going to church or believing the right doctrines. It doesn't matter how badly your life may be going, how ungodly certain aspects of your behavior may be, or how little the real life of Jesus is manifested in and to and through you. Many think they are disciples of Jesus just because they identify as, quote, Christian. And, or, they attend certain sets of religious activities or certain Uh, on a certain basis, sometimes regularly, sometimes rarely. But think about just this one truth for a moment. Jesus said, quote, If you continue in my word, then you are my real disciples. And if you do continue in my word, you will come to know the truth. And the truth will make you free. What does that mean to you? You've heard it maybe quoted all your life, all your Christian life anyway. So many times that you think because you can quote it that you know it and are doing it. 
But how free are you? What does it mean to abide in his word? Well, it's really simple if we put it in less stained glass window terminology. If we keep on learning what Jesus teaches, then we really are his disciples and it will begin to show up in how free we become. That's just an accurate, another way of saying it. In a vernacular, maybe we can relate to better. But the religious spirit is always hanging around seeking to redefine things in order to make what is loving and encouraging into something heavy and depressing and religious and discouraging. So it ends up sounding like this. Instead of you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, you hear this. That if you hear and do what I say, you will prove to me that you are serious about following me. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But if you are not free, then you are not listening. And if you are not free, you are not mine. And I can see there are all sorts of things in your life that are not free, so you must not be mine. That's the way a lot of people hear that. That is not ever the heart of what Jesus is saying to you. In fact, think of this truth. The very nature of being a disciple is to be imperfect. You don't, you, perfect people don't need to be disciples. Only imperfect people. No one who's perfect needs to be a disciple because he's already doing everything right. There's nothing new to learn. He was speaking to Jews who believed in him but were still trying to carry the weight of keeping the law in their own religious strength. And Jesus invites them in John 8, just like he does in Matthew 11, to come to him, take up his yoke of discipline, come under his yoke. That's another way of saying, stay in my word. Learn to do what he says, which means you don't know how to do what he says, and you'll have to learn, which means it's a process. But you you keep at it imperfectly, as we're all bound to do. And eventually, they will come to know the truth on a level they are that begins to produce freedom. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I will give you rest to your souls, Jesus says. That's just another way of saying the same thing. Free to begin actually living out what they were trying to do by rule-keeping and failing. The entire New Testament message is this, that if I will obey Jesus, which is the same as loving him, even though I do it faultingly, haltingly, imperfectly, my body and mind and emotions will begin to align with him so that I will begin to automatically, eventually, automatically do what I was trying and failing to do by rule keeping. I will begin to learn to automatically love even the unlovable. I will not just have to keep my temper, but I will begin to love those I once was angry at so that instead of uh, just keeping my temper, I'm moving toward them in love so there is no temper to keep. 
instead of resisting lust when looking on a person, I begin to care so much for that person, I would not want to abuse them in my imagination and reduce them to an object of mere sexual appetite. I will be transformed bit by bit, or as Paul says, from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and the Lord is the Spirit. First, uh, second, second Corinthians chapter 3. Okay, do we begin to see? So how, how do we begin to do this? Now, I know some of us have been doing it, and we will continue to learn to do it. But some of us, some of us haven't done it at all. We've just been living under the delusion of evangelical Christian misteaching. That all you've got to do is believe, uh, and, and believe just means hold to a certain set of principles from your neck up. And uh, that will set you free. Well, that's not what Jesus said. Can you think of any aspect of your life where you are not free? Have you ever reached a place where you have sort of given up? Well, if you keep doing the same things and they don't work, it's understandable that eventually you would want to give up. But would it be reasonable to ask what you have not done that you are called to do before giving up? I would start with this. Take some seriously quiet time to get still before the Lord. I mean, don't do this while you are washing dishes or driving driving uh, to the store or, you know, don't squeeze it in between some other thing you're doing. Purposely get quietly before the Lord with nothing to distract you and ask him what to do next to help you become unstuck. And then listen. After over 50 years of dealing with myself and hundreds of other people, I have seen this fact over and over, that we in this present culture have become very deceived because we hear so much and think by hearing we know about what we have heard. But we usually have not done anything with what we heard We truly think that because we have heard, we have tried that and then claimed that it didn't work. Well, James warns us about this danger in chapter 1, verse 22, when he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, thus deceiving your own selves. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, and I'm going to quote this from the Passion Translation, because it really captures it well. If you understand what I'm saying, Jesus said, then you need to respond to it. Be diligent to understand the meaning behind everything you hear, for as you do, more understanding will be given to you. And according to the depth of your longing to understand, much more will be added to your understanding. But those who listen with open hearts will receive more revelation, while those who don't will lose what little they think they have. And in John 7, verse 17, Jesus says, If anyone will do the Father's will, he will come to know and understand the teaching. 
Doing leads to more understanding. I don't believe Jesus is saying, if you don't do what I say, I will punish you by taking away from you what little you understand. No, that's not what he's saying. First, that's not his heart for you. But I also don't believe that that's what he's saying simply because he's stating a basic truth of human nature. We all know it from our own experience. We have a saying that says the same thing. Use it or lose it. We say that all the time. Whether it's learning a language or playing an instrument or any other of a million things we could name, if we don't practice, if we don't train our bodies to actually do what we are only thinking about, we will eventually lose what little ability we gained to do it. The opposite is happily also true. What we enforce by practice changes our mind, our body responses, to eventually fully perform what we started out trying haltingly at first to perform. The very nature of having to practice something is that we do not do it well. We have all seen kids who became frustrated at the first couple of attempts to ride a bike. A wise, loving parent gently but firmly guides them to keep trying. We hear them. Oh, I heard them in the park just a few days ago. Uh, of course you fell down, son. Did you think you wouldn't at least fall down a few times? You may fall a lot more, but that just means you're keeping on trying. You wouldn't be falling down because you wouldn't be trying. And you know what? If you keep on, you will stay up, and then you will have to make yourself fall over. And you know, before they left the park, he was doing a whole lot better, but he fell down a lot. Uh, that's, that's no great revelation, is it? We all know that, and yet we, we know it, and yet we don't really pay attention to it. There are a million illustrations of this, but one recently was told to me that really got the point across to me in a fresh way. Tom Wright, as many of you know, is not only a great teacher and leader alongside me and Mary, but he's also a high-ranking trainer and uh, firefighter. And he told me this recent story. He said, we have a drill we practice pretty often in order to help us put together equipment on site uh, where, uh, where we have to lift up really heavy objects and we need this equipment to, to do it. I mean, thousands of pounds. Uh, and and uh, the weightlifting mechanism begins with a set of stakes we have to drive into the ground and we have to drive them deeply uh, into the ground to hold everything up because the stakes have to be driven in very deeply. It's a given that they're pretty difficult to pull back out of the ground when we are dismantling all of it. And since we're always in a hurry to want to get finished, we uh, begin to practice by not driving the stakes very deeply into the ground so that we could be able to get them out of the ground more easily. He said a few days ago, we had a real call for the use of that equipment in a real emergency, not a drill. And as we were driving the stakes in the ground and forming the mechanism to, uh, to be able to lift several tons, suddenly 
we begin seeing stakes flying like high-speed bullets traveling right for some of us. Thankfully, it didn't hit anybody or it would have killed them on impact. When we gathered up at the end of it all to examine what went wrong, our captain said, quote, well, we just got to practice this drill better. The young fireman interrupted him by saying, sir, with all due respect, we don't need to practice more. We did exactly what we have been training ourselves to do automatically for as long as we've been doing this drill. Think, what we did under pressure of a real crisis was exactly what we did when things were not under pressure. We drove the stakes in halfway, like we have come to always do. Not one of us thought, now this is real, so we cannot just drive those stakes in lightly. We've got to drive them in deeply and firmly, or we'll be in trouble. No, sir, our drill training was exactly what we did today. We did exactly what we've been training ourselves to do, and it nearly killed some of us. We don't need to train more. We need to train right. No matter how much extra time it may take to pull the stakes up afterward. And they all agreed. No argument uh, came from anybody when they thought about those missiles flying in all directions. This is vivid to me. But we could all think of a thousand, maybe less dramatic, but just as illustrative examples in our own life. I've developed a habit of sloppy chord formation on the keyboard that was first done out of just lazy convenience. Now I have to really work at it to allow that habit, uh, to not allow that habit to continue because it fails to produce the sound that I want to produce. It's harder to deprogram the bad habit. It would have been a lot easier if I had simply programmed the good habit. God intends us to learn and reproduce our actions so they become habits. That's why we have habits. Habits are good. Driving, for instance. You don't want to ride with somebody who has to stop and think about what he should do every move he makes behind the steering wheel. It would drive you crazy, and it would drive the driver crazy. In order to drive safely, you must learn so well what you are doing that your actions become automatic. Special thinking is only for special emergencies. So habits were meant to be helpful, but we form bad habits. And the mechanism holds those bad habits just as firmly and will until they and, and will continue to until they are willfully dislodged and you retrain yourself to do differently for good. This is so elementary, we may feel a bit insulted to have it spelled out to us. Yet, look at us. We are all fighting all sorts of bad patterns of repeated behavior that defeat us till that behavior has become a hindrance to our very freedom in Christ. We could cite examples of mundane nature, but let us up the ante a bit. Let's not talk about habitual bad golf swings or piano playing. What about your temper? What about lust? 
What about mental habits that lead to self-pity, depression, or passivity? What about foolish misuse of your time or failure to give or serve because you have formed a habit of making your time or your money your own? Let's not let the devil set the agenda of self-examination. He's the prosecutor, remember. He will be happy to list all the things in you that are wrong. Reject any such list that is arising in you as you listen to this. And instead, stop, be still, and listen for that other kind, encouraging, loving point of view. As the Holy Spirit whispers to you the thing He has in mind for you to begin working on. You work on it with His guidance. Otherwise, your work will become quickly just another religious guilt-driven work of the flesh that will fail, resulting in more discouragement in giving up. Or worse, resulting in more religious fakery. Now, I'll close our time here by giving a personal example. In my early days, right after I received the prophetic word from the Scottish prophet about giving God my inconsistencies. I began to try to actually do something in line with that invitation. At the time, I had no teaching whatsoever like I'm giving here. Protestant Christians were so allergic to anything that might be labeled as works salvation that there was no teaching regarding the spiritual disciplines. Any mention of such a thing was labeled as works righteousness or even Catholic legalism. But I had heard some, a little bit, about fasting. And I think the Holy Spirit was guiding me also. So I decided to fast. Remember, I was 18 years old. Uh, Like most young guys, I thought, if a little is good, a lot is better. (laughs) So I made God a silly promise that I would not eat for 10 days. That promise was broken by breakfast next morning, and I wallowed in guilt for a day or two and ate twice more food than I normally would in those days. And then promised God a three-day fast, which also lasted only one day, one whole day. By the end of that day, I had uh, yelled and screamed at two or three of my friends. Then promised God I would do better. In tears, I confessed to God my failure. And in the quiet that comes after a wrestling match inside that seems to lead to no answers, a still, small voice said to me, I never asked you to starve yourself to prove your love for me. Do some reading. Educate yourself about fasting from older, wiser, experienced people. Then enter into it as you sense the need arising in you and let me guide you. Make me no foolish promises. Just retrain your body to obey you and not you to obey it. So I did that. I did what? I I retrained my body for the next 20 years. Sometimes I would fast for a day or two, 
and then go into a frenzy of overeating that put 80 pounds on me. You might look at me and say, well, fasting? I don't think he fasts. Well, I did fast. I fasted, and I, I actually neurologically, physiologically, trained my body to hold on to calories because I would I would not eat and then I would overeat and my body was so afraid of me not eating it would hold on to everything I fed it and I wasn't even burning the calories that I normally should burn. I had a lot to learn. I fell back into old patterns of foolish law keeping and found that what God was teaching me though uh, through all this failure, was not that my attempts at fasting so much as uh, as my need to understand the difference between legalism and real worship. That was the real lesson. Fasting just happened to be the uh, mechanism. Now, now, later on, I fasted for the purpose of fasting. But in this particular case, at the beginning, and in those first few years, all I was really learning in fasting was how to humble myself and educate myself. And I hope you get the picture. I hope you see the point. If you don't, I'll go at it from various different angles until you do get it. Maybe not in this session together, but in ones to come. So you may try to engage some discipline you consider a helpful and necessary one for reasons of your own, only to find that God was actually teaching you something even more important, but using that particular discipline to do it. Like a lady I knew who felt she talked too much. So she promised God to be still and quiet for certain days of the week. But in her still and quiet days, she found deep unhealed memories coming up of bitter childhood abuse. And in that, that became the side effect of her trying to not talk so much. See? Or there are other people who just get quiet and, and spend a few days quietly to train themselves just not to talk so much. But in her case, it was actually the uncovering of a great wound that needed to be uncovered. I've tried to set aside days of quiet to be with God and not interact with others, only to find that others were exactly who I was supposed to be focused on because I was actually using my so-called quiet time as an excuse to hide from people. My heart was uncovered. Uh, my attempt at a certain discipline was actually only used to uncover the wrong motive of that discipline. But it still achieved its purpose, and that was to reveal my, my the area of my life that wasn't free, that was operating in uh, bondage, bondage to my, my addiction to my own quiet, peaceful avoiding of people. Anyway, we're going to talk a lot more about these things, uh, Lord willing, because I think, our, you know, Mary has told me repeatedly, she says, Clay, you need to, you need to go back and do, do basics. And I'd say, darling, I'm so tired of, I don't want to do basics. We all know these basics. Uh, I want to get to things that are more in depth. Well, what, 
I, I'm kind of like a, a, a basketball player who, who doesn't want to do the fundamentals. He just wants to razzle-dazzle out there on the court and uh, act like a hot dog. And, uh, you know, any good coach will take somebody like that and put him on the bench. He may make a lot of wild, free, long shots, but uh, he he might uh, make himself look good, but it'll be at the expense of the rest of the team and the expense of a victory. And if you don't do the basics, you won't win. You may have some wonderful moments, but you you won't win in the long run. That's true in every area of life. But, uh, and that's where, I think that's where the body of Christ is right now in many, in many areas. Well, I said a few minutes ago prematurely that in closing, and then I said something else. Well, I wasn't close to closing, obviously. I, I wasn't paying proper attention to my timing. But now I am about to close. And, <laughs> I want to say this in closing. I'm thinking of what I most would want to say to you all if I was unable to communicate with you beyond today. I know I've said that before and offered several different versions of that very thing. But this is the one that seems right for now. And it's it's this. Jesus did come to forgive us but he also came to set us free to be who we were meant to be, not off in heaven somewhere, but here, now. He fully intends to do just that. The longing inside you to change is put in you and fed by grace. It's energized toward its fulfillment by the same grace. The great God-given energy from heaven set in motion for your good, is always working just for that, for your good. He turns everything for your good. And the great genius of God is that he can accomplish all this by his grace while at the same time protecting our freedom to choose. This freedom to choose is both a great blessing and a great danger. For you have lived long enough to know you often choose wrong. And that produces a lot of pain. But grace is always there to help you survive and transcend the bad choice and rise up out of the pain. What was meant for evil, God turns for your good. And in in that process, a lot of transformation takes place. Most of the first... 35 years of my life, nearly 40 years of my life, was God, God's grace moving on my behalf, but he was moving on my behalf in spite of my ignorance and foolishness, and he would rescue me over and over. But how would it be if we could actually learn to cooperate with that grace so that you move with it instead of needing to be rescued all the time. Uh, how would you like to be different uh, in that you have stopped trying to manage sin in the negative and begun to choose life in the positive? 
instead of working hard not to hate, you begin actively looking for ways to love. Instead of trying not to be stingy, you begin actively looking for opportunities to be giving. Or instead of trying not to lust, you begin to look for ways to lay your life down to serve the person that you've been secretly only lusting after. How different do you think you would be overall if you began actively focusing on just one area of your life which you have been passively allowing to stay broken? Just one area you sought ways to retrain yourself in body, mind, and emotions in just that one area. How, how many how many ripples of positive effects would flow from that one area that you focused on so that you begin to realize the one area is, is affecting many areas and you're changing in many areas while you thought you were only focusing on the one. See, we, we've we led what we called healing conferences for over 30 years in hundreds of settings on both sides of the ocean. And we're thankful to have had that great opportunity. But I always said over and over, because I knew it was true, that the day would come when we would no longer do such conferences because the Holy Spirit was going to help the whole church move away from the traditional religious settings we have all come to think of when we say church. Good as some things of that are, I'm not, I'm not being an iconoclast. I don't want to tear down the church. I want to lift up the church. But I believe with all my heart that the, the real church in all of, of her fullness was going to come forth in such a way as to move us into a more honest an accessible, true family format where we would all begin to help each other transform and change. I knew that we would see the kind of what we call healing work no longer in certain specific conference settings which were only accessible to a few who could afford the time and the money to attend them, but that the whole body of Christ would begin to cry out for real change. And I'll tell you one reason the whole body would cry out is because the whole body would be desperate for change because we would no longer have people with special categories like poor, poor um, Joe, he, he's an alcoholic, or poor, poor, name it, you know, name the sin and name the person and say, you know, they, they need real extra help because everybody was going to be awake and aware of needing all the help. And they would begin, therefore, to do locally and regularly what was necessary to help each other to really come into transformation. In other words, the gospel manifesting itself fully the way Jesus intended it and promised that it would. Now, for example, AA Alcoholics Anonymous saw this great need nearly a hundred years ago and began to adapt the principles of the early church, which the church had no longer been adapt, uh, adapting. And the AA began to make real support and help available to people from all walks of life who were struggling with alcoholism. 
thank God for, for AA. But why can't we do the same with all the other many bondages of sin that are destroying people? You know, imagine how your church would be different if every service you started off by saying, uh, Hello, my name is Clay, and I am a recovering sinner. What if people could find such support locally and regularly, not only because they are desperate, but because so many of us have made such a huge mess of our lives that we have all lost our keeping our saving face egotism and lost our care about hiding behind our fake personas and are therefore great resources of help to all kinds of people with all kinds of sins. What if Ravi had said, you know what, everything I teach is right, but I have a terrible secret bondage in my life. I can no longer hide from myself or from you, and I need help. What kind of a revolution would that have set in motion? Well, we're going to see how that revolution is set in motion because there's a lot of people out there in that condition. In the sessions that are ahead of us, we will be sharing. I'll try to make accessible some of the truths that I believe the local church has failed to make available, not to sit in judgment of that failure, but to help some of us so put these truths in real practice that we might begin to become salt and light where we are. Who, who, who knows but what you, where you live, may not be the catalyst for this very transformation to begin in your church or your city or in your part of the backwoods. I believe it will happen. I'm not hoping for it to happen. I am seeing it already in the Spirit have been for 40 years, and the time has come for the vision to take on flesh and spread. Let's pray for it, and then seek ways to begin to do it, first in our own private lives, through our own stumblings, then sharing what we've learned with those who are also desperate for real help, not by going off to this or that conference setting, but where they live in their daily lives, where Jesus meant for his kingdom to come and spread. Father, you said, Lord Jesus, you taught us that when we pray, pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying now, Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth on all the different parts of the earth that are hearing this message, all the different parts, whether they're in people's homes or in churches or in uh, AA groups or whatever, what, or co uh, conversations over a coffee table or over in a coffee shop. I pray, Father, that there will be a fire of transformation set in motion by people who are seriously trying to learn how to be your disciples, Lord Jesus, and not just believers. We trust you to do it because you said you have begun a good work in us. We'll complete it, and we trust you to do it. We thank you for it. We cry out for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.